I have not often in my life met with contented and cheerful-minded women, but I never met with so many repining and discontented women as in Canada. I never met with one woman recently settled here who considered herself happy in her new home and country. I heard of one, and doubtless there are others, but they are exceptions to the general rule. Women of the better class seem to me to be perishing of ennui, were being in general unfitted for outdoor occupations, unable to comprehend or enter into the interests around them, and all their earliest prejudices and ideas of the fitness of things continually outraged in a manner exceedingly unpleasant. They may be said to live in a perpetual state of inward, passive discord and fretful endurance. Once upon a time, Catherine Parr Trail was one of the most famous housewives in Canada. She was not a typical housewife. She found time to complain about the servant problem and freely acknowledged that she was at least upper middle class. But she left us a chronicle of everyday household life written with detail not seen before in this country. Parr Trail came to Canada or what would eventually be Canada, at a time of great change. Between 1713 and 1763, Acadia and New France were turned over to the British, and the Acadians were expelled from their paradise, though many returned after 1763. In the late 18th century, the American Revolutionary War sent United Empire Loyalists fleeing across the border some 30,000 to the Maritimes, about 2,000 to Quebec, and some 7,500 to the almost untouched territories north of the Great Lakes, that would soon be dubbed Upper Canada. Some Loyalists were white, some were black, some were native, and some were true blue English. Others were Pennsylvania Dutch, of German origin, and Amish or Mennonite background. Some were able to cling to their worldly goods and arrive in Nova Scotia, if not rich, then at least well off. Others escaped with nothing more than the clothing they wore and a barrel full of belongings. What they had in common was their determination to make a new life under the British crown. Each family received a grant of land and enough food to see them through the year. They were followed over the next 50 years by a deluge of immigrants from Europe. Between 1806 and 1844, the population of Upper and Lower Canada, now Ontario and Quebec, almost quadrupled, from just over 300,000 to almost 1.2 million. From a relatively static, unilingual, Catholic, seigneurial society, centered along the St. Lawrence and the Bay of Fundy, the collection of colonies that would become Canada became a quickly changing region where the population spoke English, French, and other languages, followed different religions, owned their own land, and sprawled across the wilds from the Atlantic to Lake Huron. Like Partrail and her husband, 
Many 19th century immigrants were driven to Canada by hard times in Europe, where an economic collapse saw families both wealthy and poor pushed to the brink. Some families went to the Maritimes and some to Quebec. In both places, they found settled communities and established towns, but life could be difficult if they lacked pioneer skills, money, or possessions. Most of the great numbers who pushed on to the bush-covered lands west of Quebec became farmers. By 1851, fewer than 15% of the close to million people in Upper Canada lived in towns. The backwoods farmers cleared the forest, built houses, established new routines, and revived or learned the skills that they needed. With transport almost non-existent, and few goods available even in the towns, they had to rely mostly on their own efforts. The women who came were a diverse lot with varying traditions, which they adapted, or not, to the circumstances of their new homes. Some were desperately unhappy, unable to cope with separation from family and friends, afraid of the wilderness, disgusted by the change from their well-ordered lives in Britain or the United States. But most made do, following Par Trail's instructions about working hard and adjusting to the country. One custom quickly adopted was the work bee. Isolated for much of the year in their own homes, backwoods women treasured any chance to get together for quilting, sewing trousseaus, and apple paring and drying. They also cooked the huge amounts of food necessary for land clearing and building bees. Housewives of a certain class, even those with little money, complained frequently in their writings that servants were scarcely to be had. If they were hired, they left soon or worked poorly, and with good reason. Many a couple that would have been poor and landless in Europe were able to purchase land of their own, and a woman could set up housekeeping in her own small cabin or shanty instead of hiring out to work in someone else's house. Even those who could afford to hire a servant or get products from the faraway store were subject to the shortages that plagued the backwoods settler. When goods were available, they had to travel over execrable roads to reach the distant homesteads, and they might, or might not, arrive in decent condition, or at all. Har Trail was far from the only woman to chronicle her efforts. Among the Loyalists and later settlers were well-educated women who naturally turned to writing letters, diaries, and books about their lives as bush housewives. Their stories of cooking, cleaning, candle-making, and other activities, their accounts of childbirth, mothering, and wifely duties and worries, and their looking after livestock, chopping down trees, helping to build houses, fishing and hunting, give us a picture of the backwoods housewife's life between 1790 and 1850. Handwritten family cookbooks passed from generation to generation, recipes from France, England, Scotland, Ireland, and Germany, ingredients native to North America and some that came from far away, scarcity and abundance. The kitchen world of the backwoods housewife was a mixture of traditional and new. 
perhaps most important were the housewives' ingenious ways of improvising. English immigrant Mary O'Brien described a day of cooking in her journal for November 6th of 1830. My little quarter of pork was dangling before the fire at the end of a skein of worsted. For having a loaf to bake, I was unable to bake it as usual in the all-accomplishing bake kettle. I cast my eyes on the said bake kettle, and behold, its lid was raised upwards of an inch by the exuberant fermentation of the loaf within, which was threatening to run down its side into the ashes. Hastily, I then was obliged to resume my labors and, seizing a knife, I cut from the top of the loaf the exceeding portion and placed it, much to my satisfaction, before the fire on a plate. There I hoped it would soon be converted into capital rusks. Of course, the frying pan would have been the natural receptacle, but that was engaged in enacting dripping pan for the pork. And who can number up the uses and perfections of a Canadian bake kettle and frying pan? I had just turned from the complacent contemplation of my arrangements when a treacherous stick on which was resting at once for support and heat a saucepan containing a stew of cabbage and an old cock, gave way and my stew was emptied onto my rusks. The rusks were spoiled, that much could not be helped, but the lucky plate saved my old cock from being buried in the ashes and enabled me to restore my stew. Just then, my guests arrived. Though the adage that cleanliness is next to godliness comes from 18th century England, there's almost nothing about cleaning the house in all of Catherine Parchale's multitudinous instructions to women who settled in Canada. A fanatical devotion to a clean house was a trait of the city and the Victorian era. Faced with the eternal mud of the backwoods, her men tracking in dirt every day from their work in the fields, and the chores that awaited her each day, the backwoods housewife was not compelled to keep her house spotlessly clean. The small houses of early settlement meant that a minimal sweeping took little time. Outdoor toilets and no piped water caused their own problems, but at least there were no modern bathrooms to clean. Which is not to say houses were not cleaned. Housewives could choose from a wide variety of brooms, homemade, store-bought, or acquired from a peddler who made the rounds of the backwoods once or twice a year. Brooms for sweeping the floor, for the stairs, for corners, for carpets. Some backwoods brooms were made of evergreen branches tied to a handle and trimmed, or a branch of a wood such as hickory, beech, or birch, one end split into fine shreds, the other used as a handle. Some women swore by cedar boughs tied together for a hearth brush because they gave forth such a pleasant scent when used. Coarse, clean sand and hot water to scrub wooden floors, applying the sand once a week with a heavy broom, and the water, the hotter the better, with a mop. Long-handled dusters were in vogue for those housewives who had possessions and knickknacks worth dusting. Once or twice a year, the housewife undertook a thorough spring cleaning, hanging the bedclothes out in the wind, but keeping any feather comforters in the shade, sweeping and cleaning in every corner. This was the time to turn mattresses that were made of evergreen boughs, corn husks, straw, or feathers. 
As in New France and Acadia, one of the housewife's chores was to keep the fire burning. Lighting a fire required striking a flint with a steel to produce sparks, or sending a child to a distant neighbor to bring back glowing coals. Hot coals were covered with ashes to keep them alive when they were not needed. Every chronicler of Backwood's life mentions the making of candles, still the light source preferred over oil lamps. I have been engaged this afternoon making up my remaining supply of tallow into four dozen portly-looking dips, eight to the pound, wrote Ang Langdon on April 13th of 1839. My last making was twelve dozen, and I think the larger number is very much as quickly accomplished as the smaller one, for they gather more tallow when thoroughly cooled, so that with many I need not go through them as often as with few. Year-round, the housewife had to battle two demons, damp and bedbugs. The authors of The Cook Not Mad recommended a yearly application of four egg whites and ten cents worth of quicksilver, that is, mercury, commonly used in household preparations, beaten to a froth and added to every part of the bedstead where bugs might appear. Bedbugs weren't the only insects to threaten the home. The same book instructs the careful housekeeper in preventing moths. Beat fur garments in April with a small cane or stick. Wrap them gently in linen, putting small lumps of camphor between the folds. Then place them into a well-closed box. Take them out when they are needed, beat them again, and hang them for a day to let the camphor smell dissipate. If the fur has long hair, added the author, as bear or fox, add to the camphor an equal quantity of black pepper in powder. Alternatively, the housewife might sprinkle scotch snuff, a fine, dry, powdery snuff, into her furs. The housewife, suggested the book, could make paste by stirring rye or wheat flour into cold water until it was the thickness of cream then heating and stirring it. If she wanted only a little for some trifling purpose, she should mix a small amount in a spoon and heat it over a lamp or candle. A reader might also learn from this book how to clean woodwork by using that most handy of substances, pearl ash, how to make a whitewash from potatoes, how to remove a glass stopper stuck in the mouth of a bottle, how to clean brass, air feather beds, make cheap blue paint for ceilings, and a whole variety of other useful hints. But few needed a book to tell them how to keep home. Most did as their mothers had done, sweeping, dusting, washing, shining, as part of their weekly routine, and washing dishes, keeping the fire, and bringing in water every day. One of the housewife's other duties was that of nurse, when fever took hold in the household, the patient sweated and shook, shivered and burrowed into the covers, then vomited and sweated again. Bones ached and teeth chattered. The illness might last for weeks. Months later, the fevers and chills recurred. In the 19th century, they called it the ague, and believed it arose from the soil when it was first broken from unhealthy swamps. They were not so far wrong, 
Ague is a type of malaria caused by mosquitoes that carry the disease, and mosquitoes breed in swamps and damp clearings. But even before the clearing began, Traveler Pear Calm noted that intermitting fevers of all kinds are very common between Lake Erie and Lake Huron, and many subsequent travelers mentioned the disease. Workers on the construction of the Rideau Canal between the Ottawa River and Lake Ontario in 1830 died from the ague, as did their wives and children. A name also used for colds or influenza, the ague was one of the litany of maladies the housewife faced in her role as family nurse. Rheumatism was rampant and accidents frequent. Medicine had progressed little in several centuries. Backwoods housewives still relied on herbal remedies and nostrums of uncertain content bought from itinerant peddlers. Some were useful, some were not. Though it was known fairly early that quinine could help with the ague, even Catherine Parr Trail recommended calomel, mercurous chloride that had a strong cathartic effect and was long thought to be a cure for many diseases and conditions, as well as Epsom salts and quinine. The successful housewife nurse grew many medicinal plants in her garden. Rose petals, hips, and leaves were used for many purposes, a soothing lotion, a sore throat gargle, a wound healing salve. Even constipation and palsy were held to be susceptible to the rose conserve. Garlic was said to cure baldness, hot onion poultices were recommended for earaches, and mashed clover blossoms took the sting out of bee stings. A salve made from black alder, lard, resin, and beeswax was recommended for burns, a poultice made of crushed plantain leaves with the stems and ribs removed was applied to almost anything, including lame feet. The more bitter the medicine, the more frequently it was prescribed. Every ethnic group had its own remedies. German immigrants liked betony, bugos, feverfew, whorehound, and licorice, among other plants. They thought rubbing a freshly cut potato over a wart would make it disappear. The British preferred celandine juice. Car Trail suggested marigolds as the all-purpose plant, good for treating cuts, bruises, burns, and gangrene, as well as for coloring cheese, butter, and wool. A housewife was expected to help the neighbors should the need arise. With all the transportation problems of early settlements, the doctor usually arrived after the crisis was over or when it was too late something that didn't help doctors' reputations. Any woman who got a name for her nursing skills, especially as a midwife, could expect to find her less skillful or poorer neighbors at her door asking for help. At nine o'clock one night, as she felt symptoms of impending childbirth, Mary O'Brien and her husband Edward sent for the doctor and the wife of an employee the only available woman in the area who could speak English. The woman arrived, the doctor did not, and O'Brien prepared herself in her room. Very rapidly, a daughter arrived into her father's hands. The doctor arrived in time to congratulate the new parents, eat supper, and go to bed. <laughs> 